All right, we come now, and welcome to Grace Community Church this morning. We come now in our worship of the Lord together to the preaching of the Word of God. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. And please join me as we ask for the Lord's help as we dig into God's Word together. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today. God, thank you for that promise that we just sang about you, that truth that we just sang about you, Lord, that you are sovereign over us, that you are faithful forever, that you are always with us, Lord. God, we believe it today that you are with us, that you are for us and not against us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we ask you to come today. Lord, we ask that you would draw near That your people today would know your holy nearness, Lord. God, we come now to your word and we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for all that your word has done in our life. You brought us forth by the word of truth. You sanctify us by the word of truth. And we pray, Lord, that your word today, with infinite power that comes from you, would be unleashed, Lord, in our lives. We are jealous for you, Lord Jesus. We are jealous for your glory. We desire for all the nations to be given to you. For you to reign as king over every square inch of this world. And we are also jealous for our own hearts. Lord, we pray that you would conquer us today. That we would submit to you in every way. That you would own every square inch, Lord. We ask that you would be king today. That your word would go forth in sovereign authority. That you would search us out. Lord, that you would convict us. That your word would make us like Jesus today. Would create faith. Would create obedience. Lord, come. God, we ask you that even now, Lord, plead. Pleading with you. God, come today in our life. Please deliver us from vain religion and from an empty gathering this morning. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Lord, I can't preach in an effective way without you. No chance, Lord. And we cannot hear apart from your holy help. Come Holy Spirit. Come help us today. Come exalt Jesus Christ. Come make us more like Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Since we had some new faces past several weeks, I want to remind us that we are coming through the Gospel of Matthew. More specifically, we're coming through the Sermon on the Mount. And what we've been seeing in recent weeks is that Jesus Christ is laying out A standard of righteousness that's required to enter into his kingdom. And today we're going to see that righteous standard applied to sexual purity. And so before we get to our text this morning, in Matthew 5, I want to start here. And I hope we can agree together as we come to the Sermon on the Mount of this truth. This is a presupposition that I'm working off of this morning, and I hope we can agree. And the presupposition is this, is that the sexual ethics 
And what that word means is just the do's and don'ts in the realm of sex in our culture is always changing. I hope we, I hope we can agree on that this morning. It's not fixed. It's not a standard that stays the same. The goalposts are always moving. Things are always changing. What was taboo and on the fringes in in these realms 10 years ago, 20 years ago, becomes the cultural norms accepted in our culture and even in some cases the law of the land. I hope we can agree on this. That we're seeing rapid change all around us of what's acceptable and unacceptable in the realm of sexual ethics. In fact, since 1960, in America, we have been living through what some have termed the sexual revolution. Many of us know about the American Revolution. The sexual revolution, we were 60 years deep into the sexual revolution, the overthrow of all restraint in the area of all matters related to sex. And the fruit of this revolution 60 years in is our culture is rapidly losing the ability right now to distinguish between a man and a woman, a boy and a girl. And Jesus Christ has a word to speak to us in the middle of this constant shift and this constant change. So in the middle of the sexual revolution and this tsunami of human opinion about what's right and what's wrong, what's acceptable in this sexual realm, Jesus Christ would have a word. The Lord of the universe would have a word to speak to us today. And so note this well, that the the sexual standards of the culture that we live in, they're always changing But the sexual standards of Jesus' kingdom are fixed, righteous, holy, eternal. They never change. They're standards that every human culture must bow down to. Because Jesus says it. They're His standards. He's going to speak a word in the midst of all this confusion. And so with that in mind, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. And let's read the words of the Son of God together, beginning in verse verse 27. Matthew 5, verse 27. Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. This is Jesus' word to this local church this morning. If you're taking notes, I'm going to give you just the 
the framework, just the basic framework of this passage of here's where we're headed. We're in the Sermon on the Mount and we find ourselves, Matthew 5, in another contrast. You've heard it said of old, but I say to you. And I want to remind us that what Jesus is doing is he's speaking to his disciples about the righteousness that's required for his kingdom. Verse 20 of Matthew 5 tells us that it's a righteousness that must far exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember that the Pharisees are the commandment relaxers. They dumb down the commandments of God. They make them attainable so that they can appear righteous before men. And so what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 5 is not arguing with Moses. You've heard it said of old. He's actually arguing with the false interpretation of the Pharisees in all six of these examples. So we have another example of this today. And specifically, Jesus is dealing in our passage with the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Seventh meaning number seven out of the ten commandments. Jesus is confronting, in verse 27, we see the Pharisees' view. And it's just this basic, narrow, external only understanding of the seventh commandment. And then in verse 28, we see that contrast. You've heard it said of old, but I say to you. And we see Jesus' view of adultery in verse 28. This broad, expansive interview of adultery in verse 28. And then in verse 29, just the plain sense of the passage, the framework here, is that Jesus warns that those who violate this command, the seventh commandment, In this broad, expansive way that he is unpacking, that they will be punished with the hell of fire, Jesus says twice in verse 29 and verse 30. So we have the Pharisees' view, we have Jesus' view, we have the punishment that is required for these sins. And then finally in verses 29 and 30. Jesus exhorts his hearers, his disciples, those who are hearing the Sermon on the Mount, and and, and through them, us today, to respond to his teaching, to urgently flee sexual temptation. So that's where we're headed this morning. Pharisees' view, Jesus' view, the punishment for breaking the law of God, and then how we should respond as hearers. Of Jesus' teaching. So I want us to start this morning with that contrast. You have heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus says. And I hope that one of the things that you're reminded of every time we come to these contrasts, walking through the Sermon on the Mount, is I hope that phrase reminds you week after week that there's a right way and a wrong way to interpret the written word of God. You've heard it said of old, wrong way. But I say to you, right way. And this is much needed. Okay, there, there, are, there are a lot of mindsets in our culture that try to evade the authority of Scripture by this offhanded cliche of, but that's just your interpretation. Okay, And we need to be reminded that the Word of God rightly interpreted is the Word of God. In other words, if somebody rejects the right interpretation of the Word of God, they don't reject the interpretation of men. They reject the Word of God itself. 
And it doesn't get more right than Matthew 5. Doesn't get more right than Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, we have the incarnate Word of God perfectly interpreting the written Word of God. And so the Pharisees, what is their view that Jesus is confronting in this passage? The Pharisees had obscured the righteous requirement of the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. They rightly understood this commandment to forbid having sex with someone else's husband or wife. They accepted that. They didn't reject that. They accepted that. They thought that was wrong. And they were right as far as they went. The problem was that the Pharisees, just like they did with the sixth commandment with thou shalt not murder, they stopped there and they did not allow the righteous demands of the law to grip the human heart. They didn't allow the law of God to go to the inside. They didn't believe that the commandment was spiritual, that it addressed the heart. And they were very proud of this fact, that they kept their life in this outward conformity to the law of God, what appeared to be right before men. In fact, Jesus tells us in a parable in Luke 18, he gives us insight into how prideful these, this external only understanding of the law of God was. Jesus tells us a parable in Luke 18, verse 11, of a Pharisee praying and strutting in his prayer before God that he is not like other men. Jesus says this in Luke 18, 11, the Pharisee was standing by himself and he prayed this way, God, thank you that I'm not like other men. Listen, extortioners, unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector and so because the pharisees didn't have sex with other men's wives they understood themselves to be clean and pure as it related to the seventh commandment even clean enough to strut before god god thank you that i'm not like these other sinners adulterers what Jesus does is the same thing we saw last week, is he will have none of this external only understanding of the law. He exposes the righteous requirement. He sets aside their interpretation and he restores the right interpretation of the seventh commandment. We see this in verse 28. Jesus says, I say, but I say to you, that's where they, what they say, that's where they stop. But Jesus says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is the, the seventh commandment on the lips of Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees is that Jesus Christ applies the law of God to the heart of sinners. And so I want us to understand this. It's plain enough in this passage. The Lord Jesus, who is never wrong, who never sins. He teaches us here 
that looking with lust is sin. More specifically, Jesus teaches us here that looking with lust breaks the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And so Jesus will have none of this external only conformity to the law of God. He's come to fill up the righteous requirement of the law, not to relax it and not to set it aside. Now, in the Old Testament, we have examples of this looking with lust leading to the sin of adultery. And David, King David is probably... uh, The most well-known example. And I will remind us of what the Bible says about King David's fall. 2 Samuel 11 verse 2 says this. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent, and he inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah? And so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And so we have an example of this this looking with lust in the Old Testament. The king is walking on the roof. He sees a beautiful woman bathing. Strike one. That sin leads him into the physical act of adultery. He had sex with another man's wife, and he broke the seventh commandment. The man after God's own heart broke the seventh commandment. Commandment. He actually broke the sixth commandment also in the story and the tenth by coveting another man's wife. And so we have examples in Scripture of looking with lust leading to adultery. But I want you to notice that's not quite what Jesus says here. Jesus does not merely say that looking with lust upon another is sinful because it can lead to the act of adultery. I want you to notice that what Jesus actually says in our passage is that the looking itself with lust is an act of heart adultery. It is a breaking of the seventh commandment. It is a committing of adultery in the sinful human heart. I want that to be clear to all of us. That Jesus is saying that the very moment that sinful heart says something like this, I want her. Or the very moment the sinful heart says something like this, I wonder what it would be like to have her or him. Jesus is saying at that very moment of desire, of fantasy, Jesus is saying You have committed adultery in your heart. You have broken God's law. Even if you never get into bed with that person, Jesus says you're guilty of breaking the seventh commandment. Now, 
Jesus' example in Matthew 5 is about a man lusting after a woman. But I want, to, I want to remind us that this cuts both ways in Scripture. Scripture gives us examples of women lusting after men. In fact, we see this in Potiphar's wife. If you remember the story about Joseph in Genesis 39... Verse 7, we are told that this woman looked with lust upon Joseph. Genesis 39, 7 says she cast her eyes on him and then she, she tried to seduce him. She said, lie with me. And so Jesus' examples here cut both ways. It's not just men lusting after women. It's women lusting after men. It indicts all of us and everyone who would have lustful thoughts about anybody else other than their spouse. And so Jesus teaches us the right requirement of the law of God. If you understand it as an external only thing, you can strut around and pretend like you're righteous. But Jesus is, is restoring the righteous requirement of the law that you have to be right, not only in your appearance before men, you have to be right on the inside, even in what you desire. Jesus teaches us that the commandment forbids not just the act of adultery, but also the desire. Now, the commandment does not forbid eye contact with the opposite sex. Okay? The sin is not looking. It's looking with lust. Okay? The commandment does not forbid a conversation with the opposite sex. What a terrible twisting if that was our understanding of this passage of the relationships between brothers and sisters in a local church. If we understood, we can't even look and we can't even talk. We're looking around at our shoestrings every Sunday. The commandment does not forbid that. Neither does the commandment forbid noticing that another person is attractive. But I want you to notice this well. Note this well. The commandment forbids any and all. Any and all desires to have sex with or fantasize about anyone else who is not your spouse. This is Jesus' broad view. Of adultery versus the Pharisees' narrow view. Now, I want us to remember that the Bible celebrates holy sexual desire. So, I want, to, I want us to remember that, that we have a warning passage here about sinful sexual desire, but I want to, want to make sure we understand that this, that, that this is a gift that God has given us. Sex and sexual desire is a good gift from a holy God. In fact, the very first word we have about sex in the Bible is Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, we have a naked man standing in front of a naked woman singing Hebrew love poetry to her. At last, bone of my bone, at last, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is a good gift of God. It's a holy, good gift of God that he's given to be enjoyed in the context of a marriage 
covenant. And so if sexual desire is like a fire, if that was an analogy, and it is like a fire, I want us to understand that the Bible doesn't just say, put it out, put it out, put it out. It does say that in many places. There are warnings about sinful sexual desire, sinful sexual activity. But that's not all the Bible says. If sexual desire is like a fire, the Bible also says, let it burn, let it burn, let it burn. Put it out, put it out, put it out. And let it burn, let it burn, let it burn. You say, what do you mean? Proverbs chapter 5. You see, it's true that Proverbs chapter 5, verse 20 says this. It says, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with the forbidden woman? Why should you embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Why would you do that? Put it out, put it out, put it out. Why would you be intoxicated with her? Put that fire out, the Bible says. And that's true. But it's also true that the Bible also says, Proverbs 5, 19, the very verse right before this. The Bible says, let your wife's breast fill you at all times with delight. And be intoxicated always with her love. So I want you to make sure you understand. Holy Scripture says, don't do this, do this instead. Same word, intoxicated, is used in both verses there. Why would you be intoxicated with a foreign woman, a forbidden woman? Be intoxicated, the Bible says, with the sexual love of your wife. And so we have both of of these ways the Bible talks. The celebration of sexual desire and sexual love in the context of a marriage covenant and the forbidding and the warning of sexual desire and sexual activity in any other context. In any other context. Sex is like a fire that's meant to burn in an oven. And that oven is called marriage. This is the appropriate boundary that God has given For these sexual desires to burn to the glory of God. And when they're restricted in this way. Like a fire burning in an oven. Not like a wildfire consuming everything in its path. But when the fire burns in the oven. When it's confined by God's holy law. It's holy in the sight of God. It is a good gift from God. A good God and it, and it enjoys God's blessing. This is sex governed, regulated by the law of God. And so I want us to understand this well. Matthew 5 and the 7th commandment. The problem is not sexual desire. The problem is sinful sexual desire. Not sexual desire doesn't forbid sex or sexual desire. It forbids sinful sexual desire. And this broad view of the seventh command would also forbid everything in between the act and the desire. 
You understand that? The desire is the very moment that sin is conceived. The act is the, the, the unfolding all the way of the sin. And everything else in the middle would also be prohibited by the seventh commandment. This would, this would include all provocations to adultery. Things like immodest dress. Seventh commandment. Broad view of adultery. Dressing to seduce another person is a sin to be repented of. It is a violation of the law of God. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5 tells us that withholding sex from a spouse is a provocation to adultery. It is a sin to be repented of. Now, that is not a verse to be weaponized by a selfish spouse. To beat over the head of your spouse to get what you want. But the word of God does call this wrong. It is wrong to withhold marital sexual love from your spouse. Also forbidden by the seventh commandment would be the viewing and listening to sexually explicit shows or sexually explicit music. See, some of us would never dream of committing adultery against our wife. But we'll cut on a show on TV and watch two people commit adultery right in front of us. The seventh commandment would prohibit, would prohibit these provocations. Sexually explicit speech or sexually explicit joking can also be provocations to Adultery, anything that can provoke sinful lust. And without a doubt, the seventh commandment forbids any and all viewing of pornography. Pornography. We have a wicked sin that's run rampant in our day. A selfish sin that says, I'll look at whoever I want to look at. I'll look at them whenever I want to look at them and I'll do whatever I want to do with that person. And when I'm done with them, I'll close the screen and set them to the side. I'll use them in every way. Do you see how selfish that sin is? And also a numbing sin. Pornography numbs us to the, to the, to the opposite sex. We, we, we get stuck in this ingrained pattern of, te- of looking and viewing the opposite sex as nothing but a sex object to fulfill my sinful desires instead of an image bearer of God that I'm called to love as my neighbor. Jesus' broad view of, in, of adultery would prohibit all of these things as breaches Of the seventh commandment. Now, I hope you understand that that it's a lot easier for the Pharisees to pretend that they are righteous before God when they take that narrow view of the law of God. I hope you understand that. By dropping the standard, as long as I don't crawl into bed with another person that's not my wife, I'm fine. I hope you understand how easy, if you accept that way of thinking, of how easy it is to deceive yourself that you're a pretty good person. But Jesus reveals the righteous standard that exposes all of us as sinners and lawbreakers. Romans 3 verse 20 tells us this, through the law... 
comes the knowledge of sin. And so Jesus is reminding us in the Sermon on the Mount, it is not how we outwardly appear before others that is the real us. The standard is not according to what others think about us and what others see. Jesus is teaching us that the standard is according to what God sees. And so Jesus is teaching us here that our sins of sexual immorality are a breach of the seventh commandment. And then the very thing, next thing Jesus says in verse 29 and 30 is he tells us that God will judge us for these sins. In verses 29 and 30, we are told twice that those who commit sexual sin will be thrown into hell. The Gehenna of fire is what Jesus says. That those who breach the commandment, the holy law of God, will be punished with hell. And I want us to understand, as we begin to connect these dots, this is the second passage in a row that Jesus has taught us about hell. About law breaking in hell. And this shows us that hell is a very different place than many of us have understood it to be. Say, what do you mean? Many of us have have wrongly understood hell to be the place where notorious sinners are punished. Notorious, wicked sinners are punished. Do you believe in hell? Oh yes, I believe in hell. It's a place of judgment. Who's there? Right now. Well, Hitler's probably there. He killed over a million Jews. Notorious sinner. Cain is probably in hell. He's the first man to kill his brother. Murder entered the human race through his hands. So Cain and Hitler are probably in hell. Maybe as we unfold some of the wickedness in our culture, we had a story a couple of years ago about an abortion doctor that had killed over 3,000 unborn babies in his life. He's got blood all over his record, blood all over his hands. And to top it all off, he's driving around in his car with baby parts in a mason jar just because he likes it. Most of us would probably say, yeah, he's probably in hell. He's probably going to hell. The notorious ones... The notorious lawbreakers. But what this passage actually does is it shows us that hell is different than we imagine. It's not just for those who are notorious lawbreakers. It's not even just for those who commit those external acts of adultery. Jesus is teaching us here that hell is for those who committed adultery in their hearts. Even if they they never climbed into bed with another person, Jesus tells us that they're going to be punished. We're going to be punished for our heart sins. Hell is different than we imagine. So take that engaged couple that put all the right fences around their relationship, and rightly so. And they didn't kiss until their wedding day. And rightly so. Jesus is teaching us in this passage that if they lusted in their hearts, they too are indicted by the holy law of God as lawbreakers. And not only that, 
Jesus tells us that they will be punished with the Gehenna of fire. Jesus tells us that hell will be a place where heart sins are punished. Even if external sins were never committed and followed through with. And so Jesus' preaching of hell here should remind us that our sexual sins, all of them, are no light thing in the eyes of God. They're light to us. They're light in our eyes. So often we find ourselves downplaying our sin, do we not? God is never like that. He is not like us, not like us, not like us. He is holy, holy, holy. Now I want to ask you this. Have we misunderstood the plain sense of what Jesus is teaching here? Have we misunderstood something? And the plain sense being this, that those who lust in their hearts have broken the seventh commandment. They have committed heart adultery and they will be, they will be punished by the hell of fire. Have we misunderstood Jesus here? Is this just our interpretation? Or is this not just the plain reading of the text? Is this not just the plain sense of what Jesus is saying? I think we all know it is the plain sense. This is just the plain sense of what Jesus is saying. And it demands our response. We have to respond to what Jesus is revealing to us about the law and about our sin. And the reality is, is that some in the room this morning, you need to be saved. You need to be saved as you are made aware of how the Son of God thinks about the law and about sin and about punishment and about hell. You know that you cannot meet the righteousness that is required of you to enter into heaven. And you know you need to be saved. There's somebody here. If not several people here this morning. You need to be saved by Jesus Christ. You need to confess your guilt. You need to confess that you are not a Christian. And you need to put your trust in Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God that takes away sin. And the good news of the gospel reminds us that there is hope. There is hope for you today. Because Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God. He is the one that came. And Jesus obeyed in all the ways that you failed. And taking this narrowly in the seventh commandment, he is the only one. The righteous one that has ever kept this commandment perfectly and spotlessly. And I want you to worship him for that this morning. That there was never, of course Jesus didn't climb into bed with someone that he wasn't. Of course he didn't. But don't you see his perfect purity? That there was never a moment in his holy life where there was even a desire that landed in his holy heart. He's the righteous one. He never sinned. He never had sinful lust. He loved his neighbor perfectly. His heart was fully set on his father who was in heaven. His heart was locked up like Fort Knox with the law of God. He loved the Lord, his God. And as we saw just several weeks ago that Jesus Christ, he would rather starve than sin against his God. 
He's the righteous one. He obeyed in all the ways that we failed. And on his cross, he takes the sinner's death that we deserve, that we owe to God for our sins. And so the Bible tells us the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ, the one who's speaking these words in Matthew 5, this hard word, the one who's speaking these hard words, the Bible tells us that he came into the world to save sinners. The one who's speaking these words is in this world to save sinners. And so I want to encourage you this morning, trust him. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. He invites sinners to come to him. He doesn't say, wait till you get it all figured out and come see me. He really does say this. He says, come to me. Come to me. And he promises that all who come to him, all who put their trust in him, he'll save you. Not one will be forgotten. Not one will be condemned. He will save us. He's promised us eternal life. A forgiven record. And even a new heart. So there's good news this morning. Because Jesus Christ has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has rose. And Jesus is at the right hand of God. Even today to save us from our sins. Some of you today, you need to be saved. And this is how God would have you to respond. But I want us to know that's a beautiful response. And I don't want to take anything away from that response. The Bible says angels in heaven rejoice when somebody responds like that. They throw a party in heaven when a sinner repents. Really, it's true. Taking nothing away from that. I want to remind us this morning that that's not the only response. And it's not even the response that Jesus specifically highlights in this passage. In verse 29 and verse 30, Jesus calls us to a radical turning away from sin. In verse 29, we are told to pluck out our eye that causes us to sin. In verse 30, we are to cut off our hand. That causes us to sin. So what's the plain teaching here? Jesus, after he shows us the righteous requirement of the law and the coming judgment, he makes sure that we understand as disciples of Jesus that there will be no peace with sin. Disciples of Jesus cannot make peace with sin. Disciples of Jesus make war against sin. There will be no peace. J.C. Ryle says it this way, There's a fight which everyone who would be saved must fight. A Christian is a man of war. There are thousands who name the name of Christ, and yet you never see any fight about their religion. Jesus is calling us to fight, to resist, to make war on indwelling sin. He's calling His disciples to a radical, moral, Self-denial in this passage. Radical. Tear out your eye. Cut off your hand, Jesus says. This is amputation language, surgical language. And as we read the rest of the New Testament, we find out Jesus is not having in mind here physical amputation. As we read the rest of the New Testament, the apostles explain Jesus' language here in the terms of mortifying indwelling sin. 
Jesus is calling us to mortify sin when he tells us to cut off our hand. Paul says it this way in Romans 8 verse 13. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So I want you to understand that this morning. To cut off your hand is to mortify your sin. To kill, mortify meaning to kill it. To kill it, to put it to death. Plain sense. Make sure we're not twisting anything this morning. If we neglect this warning in this passage to tear out our eye and to cut off our hand, Jesus tells us that we are on a sure path to hell. He says it this way in our passage. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And so I want you to understand that this morning, that your obedience to Jesus Christ in this text confirms your salvation. Okay? Not grounds your salvation. It's not do this so that you can be saved. Your obedience to cutting off your hand that causes you to sin confirms your salvation. It confirms that you've been made new. It confirms that the life of God pulses through your soul. It confirms that Jesus Christ lives in you. It confirms the new covenant that the heart of flesh has been taken out. And God has given, the heart of stone has been taken out. And God has given us a heart of flesh. Mortifying our indwelling sin confirms that we are on the path of life and not on the, the, the broad and easy path to destruction, Jesus says later in the Sermon on the Mount. And that needs to be so clear to us because there's very little that the Bible says with much more clarity than you cannot continue to live in sin as a follower of Jesus and inherit heaven. I'll give you one place. Ephesians 5 says this. Now listen. To a church of professing Christians. Says this. For you may be sure of this brothers. That everyone who is sexually immoral. Or impure. Or who is covetous. That is an idolater. Has no inheritance. In the kingdom of Christ. And God. So ignoring this sin. And living in sexual perversion, it confirms that you are on the path to hell, not on the path to life. And we could summarize Jesus' teaching in verse 29 and 30 with John Owen's famous phrase in his book, The Mortification of Sin. He says this, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. You could even make it more specific in this way, be killing sexual sin or it'll be killing you. Those are your two options. Be killing it, Romans 8, 13, by the power of the Spirit. Or it will be killing you. That's Jesus' teaching in our passage today. Now, because this text calls us to kill our sin, to cut off the hand that causes us to sin... 
I want to give three closing reasons, categories really, a lot more than three, of things in our life. I want to, I want to help you think through this. Of things in our life that will cause us to disobey Jesus' teaching here. Specifically the teaching of tearing out the eye and cutting off the hand. What are things in our life that can be true that would cause us to disobey such a righteous king, such a wise king? It's Jesus Christ. Number one, anemic views of sexual sin. Anemic meaning pitiful, harmless. That you think about your sexual sin as this little bitty thing. Not that big a deal. After all, I'm not hurting anybody. What I do in my house or in my office with no one else around, not hurting anybody. What's the big deal? Those views of sexual sin, hopefully you understand the connection here. How will you cut off your hand if you don't even really understand that that hand is bringing death and harm into your heart? How will you do it? The answer is you won't. If you have anemic views of sexual sin, you won't cut off your hand. That causes you to sin. Anemic views of sexual sin are caused by your standards being others, culture, and not the holy, righteous law of God. That's the undergirding of anemic views of sexual sin. Sin. This is why we need law preaching as Christians. It's not just get saved in gospel, 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 gospel. It's a whole lot of gospel. But it's also law, righteous requirements of God. This is the will of your Father who is in heaven. This is why we need the preaching of the law. Romans 7 verse 13 reminds us that one of the things that happens when we are confronted with the righteous requirement of the law of God is that sin becomes exceedingly sinful. ESV translates that as sinful beyond measure. And so when we see that righteous standard in the law of God, we don't think little bitty sins. We think sinful beyond measure. We think of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. There's no such thing as little sexual sin. The cross of Jesus Christ reminds us that our sexual sin Even our heart sins are such a big deal that it sent Jesus to a bloody death on the cross. In other words, the atonement that was required for that sin that we think to be so little was the bloody death of the Son of God. So don't forget that, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ was cast into the outer darkness for that little bitty thing that you do in your office Or in your home when no one else is around. It's not a little thing. Number two. The ease of other methods. The ease of other methods will keep you from obeying what what Jesus Christ commands in this passage. Say, what do you mean? There are many other strategies that are much, much, much more comfortable than cutting off your hand or tearing out your eye. I hope you can agree with that. 
Like we can think of hundreds of things that would be more enjoyable and more comfortable than this metaphor that Jesus gives us. And there are many of these strategies all around us. You could call them strategies of sin management instead of strategies of sin killing. And I want you to be warned that your flesh prefers the easy, broad way that leads to destruction. Not the narrow, hard path that leads to eternal life. You need to know this about yourself. Because if you don't know this about yourself, you're going to grab for these easy buttons. Easy button, easy button, easy button, comfort button, comfort button. And you're going to come up empty. Because these strategies, though they're easier, they're powerless to sanctify us. Let's get our mind around some of these. It's easier, is it not, to go to sex addiction therapist for a listening ear and life hacks than it is to go to the great physician, Jesus Christ, who commands you to cut off your hand. Is that not easier? More comfortable? There's all these paths all around us. We need to be aware of them. Brothers and sisters, it's easier to go to a weekly confession group for affirmation and acceptance with your sin than it is to go to Jesus Christ who commands that you make war on your sin. Certainly you know that these exist. (laughs) Certainly you've seen this, even in the church. Groups get together, blind leading the blind. Did you fall? Yeah, I fall. Yeah, me too. Three months later, same thing. One year later, same thing. These comfortable strategies to improve your life that don't even work. And you walk out of these groups and you feel affirmed and you feel loved, but you don't feel like a soldier on the battlefield ready to swing the sword of the Spirit, to cut things off, to put things to death in your life. There are easier paths. There's an easy way and a hard way. You need to be aware of them. It's easier to go to a charismatic, spirit-binding preacher who cast out the spirit of adultery from you. Now, your problem is that you're possessed with this unclean spirit. It's easier to go to a man who proclaims incantations over you and then poof, you're healed. Than it is to go to Jesus Christ who tells you that your problem is your own sinful heart. It's easier. There's an easy way and a hard way. It's easier to sit under preaching of a velvet mouth antinomian pastor than it is to sit under the preaching of a faithful man of God who refuses to allow his hearers to feel comfortable in their sin. There's an easy way and a hard way. You need to be aware of them. Your flesh prefers the easy way. There's nothing easy about what Jesus is commanding in this passage. And then this hits close to home for every one of us on both sides. It's easier to go to a deceitful friend who will kiss you than it is to go to a faithful friend who will wound you. That's a reference to Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. You see, a friend who coddles you in your sin 
and doesn't wound you in your sin is no friend at all. You need to understand that. The Bible really says this. That if all you ever give is kissy, 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 the Bible says those are deceitful kisses. That love requires that you wound those who are walking in sin. Not to harm them, but to heal them. Friends who coddle us in our sin are no different than the false prophets in Jeremiah's day. Listen. Jeremiah indicted the false prophets for healing the wounds of God's people lightly. Did you know that you could do that? Did you know that you can do that in the way that you speak, in the way that you care for another who is in sin? They have a wound and the false prophets healed it lightly, Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 6.14. And Jeremiah tells us how they did it. They said, peace, peace. When there is no peace. When we love others like that, we're no different than false prophets saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. And so I want to encourage us all, brothers and sisters, don't accept these cheap substitutes, these easy buttons, these easier methods to deal with our indwelling sin. They are cheap substitutes for sanctification. This is not the mortification that Jesus is calling for and the rest of the New Testament explains. We must follow Jesus down the narrow and the hard path that leads to life. Yes, there is a way to soften what is required. Think about what we're being commanded to do here. Tear out your eye and to cut off your hand. Do you want to be found among that crowd that attempts to soften this hard saying of Jesus Christ? This is what he's calling for. This is the radical response. This is what obedience to Jesus looks like. Not play with it. Not play around with it. But he says, cut off your hand. That causes you to sin. I hope you see how dangerous this is. How urgently we should be fleeing from our sins. And how watchful we should be about every false substitute that claims to be an alternate route for sanctification. And then the last reason this morning that I want to note a reason if these things are true in your life that will cause you not to obey Jesus Christ is this, that the radical measures that Jesus calls for in our text are legalistic overkill. Now I want you to think through this one. Very few would have um, the outright boldness to call Jesus legalistic or to say that Jesus is, you know, in overkill in his response in verse 29 and 30. And so what happens is those who lean in, those who are being falling into sexual sin and they love Jesus Christ and they lean in to obey him and they start getting rid of stuff in their life, that's who gets mocked. Not Jesus. But who gets mocked is those who actually obey him. A man, that sounds legalistic. Man, 
I understand what you're doing here, but, but man, that sounds overkill. That sounds a little legalistic to me. And the ways that we th- the reasons why we think like this is we think ourselves far too respectable for such radical measures to bring our lives in conformity to Jesus Christ. It's true enough that Jesus is not calling for a literal amputation. And the truth is that wouldn't be radical enough. But he is commanding that we completely remove from our life the things that are causing us to sin. And so you know this. There's a way to play with it and there's a way to get it out of there. And Jesus is saying, get it out of there. Tear out your eye. Cut off your hand. I want you to know that the early church had a different problem than we do. By early church, I mean for about the first 250 years of Christianity. They had a different problem than we do. And it was a problem, I don't want to turn it into a virtue, but it was a completely different problem than what we have. We learned from church history that out of love for Christ and misinterpreting this text and others like it, that many men in the early church castrated themselves as an act of obedience to Jesus Christ from this text. They castrated themselves to keep themselves pure from sexual sin. Again, they were wrong and it's not a virtue. But it's a whole different set of problems than the problems that we have. We're told from church history that this practice was so common in the early church that it took a church council to stop it. In 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea, most of us understand that that council to be associated with the Nicaean Creed, rightly so. One of the other things that happened at that council is that the church made it canon law, church law, that forbid amputation, self-mutilation, and castration as a legitimate interpretation of this text and others like it. Now, I'm not suggesting that they were right, they were wrong, but I do want you to understand the contrast. Completely different problem than what we have in our modern church. Early church falls into sexual sin and they say, Off with my members! I will be pure for Jesus Christ. Modern church falls into porn and can't even amputate the computer. And that contrast is a shameful contrast of the battle that we're finding ourselves in. All around us, the radical response that Jesus is calling for in this passage The things that are causing us to sin, Jesus says, get it out. Get it out. Not play with it. So I want to focus in as we close. This is not the only sin. May the Spirit of God apply this in a hundred ways this morning. Whatever it is that's causing you to sin, get it out. Places you go. Stop going there. Things that that cause you to think in a certain way. Remove the temptation. That's what's required in this text. Brothers and sisters, mainly brothers, I want to zone in for just a moment about those who are caught in porn. 
pornography. The Bible says that sexual immorality is a sin that's not even supposed to be named among the saints. And yet we look around and, and, and the pornography industry is a multi-million, maybe even a billion dollar industry in our culture. It's all around us. It's made inroads into the church in every way. And so I want to make this as simple as I can this morning. If you are caught in pornography, I want to exhort you from this passage of Scripture, get it out. The things that are causing you to sin, get them out. Get rid of your computer. Get rid of your smartphone. Off with it. Amputate it. Get rid of it. And here's where that objection comes in, right? Wait a second. Wait a second. That's overkill. I mean, I know I'm wrong in looking at this stuff and I know I should stop, but it's not like I'm like crawling into bed with another person. Do you understand? That's the Pharisee, not the one who's trying to obey Jesus. That's the law relaxer that thinks the only thing that's evil and punishable is the external act. Get it out. Cut it off. The objection, ah, but you don't understand. You just don't understand. How can a person in our modern world stay connected in our day? How can we stay connected apart from social media and email? What will others think about such drastic, archaic measures? They'll think I'm a Neanderthal man. It sounds a little like legalistic overkill. You mean like get rid of my computer? Don't you mean like put some stuff on there to restrict me? Is that what, that's what you, but you said get rid of it. Jesus says cut off your hand. He does. He does not say play with your sin. He says cut off your hand. Get rid of the things that cause you to sin. I'm not trying to be mean to anybody this morning. I'm not trying to be mean to anybody this morning. I promise I'm trying to help you. I know without a doubt that there are several, if not many men in this room who are trapped enslaved to internet pornography. I'm trying to help you. You say, I feel like you're hurting me. I feel like you're wounding me. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Get rid of it. Cut it off. But what about my work? What about all the good that happens on those devices? Brother, what about your soul? Is that not what Jesus said? Better to what? To lose a member, Jesus said, than to be cast into hell with your whole body. Translation. Better to enter life without electronic devices than bust hell wide open with a smartphone and a laptop. Cut it off. Final objection. But I just can't stop. I've tried. I just can't stop. This is a lie. This is a lie that many believe. If I put a gun to your head right now and I told you that if you opened your laptop again, I would pull the trigger. You know what everyone 
of us would find resolve to do is not open that laptop. You can stop. That's a lie. And the reality that we need to understand is that Jesus is threatening in this passage something that's a million times more dangerous than a gun to our temple. He's saying that if we don't cut off these sins, that we are going to receive the Gehenna of fire. The fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Where the soul and the body is destroyed by God. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. When we say things like that, but I just can't stop. We're not thinking right. That's a lie. Don't receive that lie. Flee from the wrath to come. Cut off your hand. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are pure in heart. They will see God. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be made pure from the inside out by the work of Jesus Christ. And sisters, I want to exhort you in relation to this sin. I want to encourage you this morning to refuse to pursue marriage with a man who is entangled in pornography and refuses to take drastic measures to be holy. I want, you, I want to encourage you to refuse to pursue marriage with that man. It's the way to love him. It's the way to love Jesus. He is pra- if that's the man that is pursuing you, he is practicing to cheat on you while he is courting you. He is committing adultery with other women while he is courting your hand in marriage. And I want to encourage you to cut it off. He must take drastic steps to live a holy life before God. Dads, I want to encourage you to hold that standard for the daughters of this church. That we would hold that standard of righteousness and of purity. Dads, I want to encourage you that you would hold forth not only the standard as it relates to those courting your daughter, but that you would give your children an example of a man who loves his wife like Christ loves the church. That he's not cheating on her in his heart with all these other women. Not, not a sinless man, but a holy, godly daddy. I want to exhort us to be men like that. And I want to exhort this whole church that we would begin to pray in this way. That God would deliver us from this stronghold all around us. And that's exactly what it is. Inroads into the church of Jesus and it mocks the gospel. It pretends to have more power than the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. And men, women, old and young, I want us to all pray that the power of Jesus Christ would be demonstrated in Grace Community Church. That Christ would deliver us from these sins. That He would make us forgiven and make us pure and make us new. Blessed are the pure in heart. One of the things that provoked King David, you remember when he ran to the battle lines, when Goliath began to mock the armies of Israel. And David ran to the battle lines and he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that mocks the armies of the living God? I want to encourage us to view this stronghold like that. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? That pretends to have more power than the resurrected Jesus Christ. 
And I want us to pray in accord that God would deliver us, that he would put the power of Christ on display, the sanctifying power of Jesus Christ to make us pure. To those who have fallen, as we close, I want to remind you, you have no reason to be discouraged if you have resolved to follow Jesus Christ, to follow Him as your Lord, to turn from your sin. You have no reason to leave this place discouraged. The one who breathed out these words died to forgive you of your sin. And He lives in us. To help us. To sanctify us. The one who speaks these words in Matthew 5 has given his Holy Spirit to help us to turn from our sin. And I hope you leave this place encouraged. Jesus, help me. I know that you're going to help me. You're not going to take me to the gates of heaven and then abandon me. You're going to help me. You're going to finish the work. That you started in me. Let's pray. Lord, we call on your name today. God, there's so much that was said today. Lord, I pray that you would purify it. That you would cancel anything that is not from you. And that you would cause your word to dwell richly within us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings